0: You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weerd, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This is the last episode of season four and of 2021. Manufactured will be back in the spring of 2022 with more content. Be sure to follow along on Instagram or sign up to the newsletter on the website www.manufacturedpodcast.com for updates about exactly when that will be. Okay, today's episode. Today's episode is all about cotton and misinformation. But before I tell you more about that, I want to introduce my guest co-host, Sarah Mock, who I still can't quite believe agreed to do this. I'm so honored and so grateful. Who better to co-host a conversation about cotton misinformation than a rural and agricultural writer and researcher? I first heard of Sarah when I wrote an article putting forward an alternative interpretation of due diligence. The article got some traction with people working in the food and agricultural sector, and a very wise person suggested that I might enjoy Sarah's work, which... I very much do. In her own words, she has described herself like this. I quote, I grew up milking goats on a farm in Wyoming, studied economic development at Georgetown, and since then have worked alongside farmers and communities struggling to remain relevant in a changing world. End quote. Among other things, she's the author of the book Farm and Other F-Words and the newsletter Big Team Farms, and I will put links to both in the show notes. And a few months ago, she wrote something in her newsletter that's really stuck with me. It's a quote that I've come back to again and again as I sort of struggle and have doubts with my own work and with telling the stories that I put forward through this show. It's also nice food for thought for the end of another not so easy year. I hope it resonates with you the way that it did with me. And I quote, I believe in people above all. I believe there is nothing more persuasive, more beautiful, more infuriating, more sad, or more profound than the ways we make each other think and feel. I believe that the stories we tell about each other are sacred, and I believe that there is no greater act of love, hope, or faith in a more perfect future than to tell another's story, to cultivate another person's infiniteness and immortality by sharing about their experience. This work is soul food. So when you tell people's stories, do it with love. Think of every glorious, beautiful thing the person you're writing about has done and write as if that's the person they are, one capable of greatness. Hold them to the truth always. Lovingly confront lies when they're spoken, but don't silence them. Everyone deserves to speak and to be heard. Suspend your biases, accept your bias towards truth, justice, and love. And most importantly, love the people you write about in all their brokenness and imperfection don't lie about them not to protect them nor to protect yourself see them as they are and love them for their truth make a place for them in the community invite them to join and make them welcome it is their choice to come or not but it is your duty to love them by telling the truth as best you can End quote. so all that to say you're in for a treat today, and we're so lucky to have Sarah guest co-hosting the show. Which brings me to our guests, another pair of all-round inspiring humans, Marcia Lanfranki and Elizabeth Klein, co-authors of the new report Cotton, a case study in misinformation. Marzia is the intelligence director of Transformers Foundation, an independent sustainable fashion consultant and founder of Cotton Diaries, a solution-based platform for cotton sustainability. If this sounds familiar, that's because she's been a guest on the show before. To learn more about Marcia's work, her perspective, her thoughts, and Transformers Foundation, be sure to go back and check out episodes 55 and 56. Transformers Foundation is the unified voice representing the denim industry and its ideas for positive change. It was founded to provide a thus far missing platform to the jeans and denim supply chain and a central point of contact for consumers, brands, NGOs, And media who want to learn more about ethics and sustainable innovation in the industry. Elizabeth Klein is a freelance journalist who writes about environmental and labor issues in the global fashion industry. She's author of the critically acclaimed book Overdress The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion and The Conscious Closet The Revolutionary Guide to Looking Good While Doing Good. She's also played a big role in the Pay Up Campaign, which is now the Pay Up Fashion Campaign which we've referred to often on the show for its important work on purchasing practices. And she's the Advocacy and Policy Director at Remake. In this episode, part one of our chat, Marcy and Elizabeth explain a bit about their report, Cotton, a Case Study in Misinformation, and why it was a project they wanted to take on. We then get into one of the myths about cotton that they debunk in the report and their take on how this myth came to be so widely circulated in the first place. This takes us into some bigger questions like, what would make someone inclined to believe that the myth was true in the first place? What are the biases within information itself? How do we tell better, more nuanced stories? And who should be telling these stories? In part two of our conversation, also out today, we talk about numbers. How should they be approached? How do we make space for context? And how can we use numbers to tell more nuanced stories instead of flattened ones? This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast, or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. Marzia and Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on this show. I wonder if you could kick things off by just telling us briefly a little bit about what this report is all about. Elizabeth. I mean, the
1: report is... is At first, an acknowledgement of um, the problem of misinformation in fashion and connecting it to our society's wider um, information disorder and just helping people to understand that the misinformation that is circulating about fashion and fashion sustainability, it's not unique to our sector. Um, And then from there, the, the thesis is that we really hope that by teaching people um, how to use claims and data more responsibly is kind of like a really important part of solving misinformation. So it's almost like we're democratizing, um, you know, how to use claims responsibly. And then, of course, we also wanted to replace the misinformation that is circulating about cotton with credible recent um, quality data and put it all in one place so people have easy access to it whenever they
2: need it. Sarah? I was interested I think you all took a very really interesting tract on this because as someone who comes from the agriculture space you know I think agriculture tries to do a lot of this work as well but ends up looking kind of odd. Because, you know, the one on the one side you have like kind of what is seen as like legitimate journalists and news publications, you know, putting out this information. Then on the other side, you have like the industry who is economically incentivized to not have this stuff out there being the, the kind of fact checker there um, and falling into the trap of like, well, of course, you'd say that. Of course, you'd say that that's not the right information that actually we're doing better than other people um, or <clears throat> doing better than like the media would suggest that we are. And I think it was really interesting to see how you all pointed out, like in, you know, very early on in the study, this is not this is not like industry propaganda. This is like written by a journalist. This is fact checked by outside fact checkers, not related to our our industry. So I'm curious, uh, maybe a little behind the curtain about how did you all decide that that was what needed to happen? And. You know how did you go about making sure that the bias of, you know we are we do have a vested interest in the outcome of this, but we also just want this to we want to have a genuine, authentic, honest conversation about the the real facts? Marcia.:
3: Yeah, but how we, um, you know, tried to balance that out was by um, making sure that most parties were represented. When uh, when we did the research, so that means um, we 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 were interacting with the what some people would call the conventional um, cotton um, industry representative, and then the organic cotton people representatives and then um why don't we take um a reports perspective a reporter perspective on it why don't we take a um, farmer's perspective on it so we have these different stakeholders are represented in our feedback loop and in our research project process as well as in the um what we call it what we call it the, the revision board, which in in academic terms it would equate to a peer review, but we can we cannot call it a peer review because it's not a scientific journal and it's. Uh, but it's it's the process that we went through. So we tried to mimic the scientific approach rather than a um, media blog or commercial approach. So that's uh, that's how I think some of the mechanism that we we. We took. And as you, as you mentioned, the fact checker, the third party fact checker was so important and key for us and also the involvement of Elizabeth. I think it really helped. And it says this close to the
1: top is that we're not setting out to make cotton look good. I mean, I know we're going to dig into the claims, but just to give an example, replacing this widely circulated 20, you know, cotton consumes 20,000 liters of water per kilogram of lint. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a credible data point that we offer in the in the report is, you know, that it requires six thousand and three liters of rainwater per kilogram of lint. Um, You know, I I, I don't think anyone would argue that, like, that necessarily makes cotton look better. Um, And that really wasn't the point of the paper. It was really to to kind of raise the bar and raise people's level of understanding of the industry so we can have more nuanced conversations like especially once we get into the pesticide section of the paper like it's really complex right the conversation is really complex so i i really just want to push back on the idea that we set out to try and make cotton look good or something like that
3: we're not setting out a solution to cotton sustainability issues we're saying this is the information upon which people can inform their strategies or their, um, you know, the, their decision moving forward. It's not the solution to cotton sustainability. It's one part of the solution to our misinformation issue. And so this is need, need to be separate because some people um, mistaken this paper role in like to push sustainability conversation towards one or the other um, route. And it's not what it's set out to be.
2: Yeah, that is a challenge that I come up against too. I think in my a lot of my reporting is that like you know there is a there is a real role to be had of just like before we can talk about solutions we have to actually like clearly identify and talk about the problem because we can't create a solution to a problem to to a problem that doesn't exist because we're not we don't understand what it is because we don't have the right information. So, uh, but yeah, but I think people often look at that kind of work and say like, well, you're not doing anything you're not moving fast enough, you're not like having a big enough impact by just saying what the problem is, but things take more time than people always want them to.
0: Yeah. And I think like one of the tensions that I think we're sort of that underpins a little bit of what we're talking about, which we'll we'll get into in more detail later in the conversation, is like, on the one hand, it's like, you know, one of the most interesting parts of the report, I thought was this quote about like, you know, that numbers aren't neutral, and that, you know, quantifying something is always sort of a political or a social act on the one hand. On the other hand, we still got it. There's still something here about the facts and getting them right. And so like, what's the sort of how do you sort of reconcile those two things? But we will come back to that. Um, I want to, before we sort of uh, get to the heart of this conversation, Marzia, give you a chance to just talk briefly about what Transformers Foundation is. And why this was an issue that you were so keen, you as the
3: foundation were so so keen to to tackle. So Transformers Foundation is a not-for-profit organization that represents the denim supply chain. And um, we say it's ideas for positive change. And by supply chain, I mean uh, from cotton farmers to um, denim machine manufacturers to garment manufacturers, denim mills, and, um, and not the brands, though. And so we represent this unified voice of um of the of this um denim uh, sector. And uh, one uh, one of the key challenges that we identified in this industry was um well exactly like misinformation or misleading claims, unclear Marketing um not backed up by science, etc, so this for us um, was a major challenge and because it was um, we def- define it as a key reason why we are not moving towards positive change as meaningful and and actionable and and truthful and we see that some players are pushing and moving the needle forward on sustainable performance while others are just talking about it through misleading claims or through like misinforming the decision, they are not really moving towards the right direction. And so that's why we tackle misinformation as an issue. And the reason why we tackle um, misinformation through the lens of cotton with this case study was because cotton is a key part and key component of denim. We cannot ignore it. And so if we are misinforming um, our choices on sustainable decision in cotton it's not a very good place to start um, to move the sectors in the right direction
0: and elizabeth i'm curious from your side too because you have a number of different roles and hats Um, why this was something that you were especially interested in being part of.
1: Yeah, I think that for me, the interest was really twofold. First, when I was working on um, a feature story on organic cotton farming in West Texas in 2019, I did that for Another Tomorrow, which is a brand, but then they have like a a magazine that's completely separate, like the to my knowledge, the funding is separate. The editorial process is completely separate from the brand. Um, they offered me the opportunity to write this story, and um, you know, when when um, when I actually got out on the farm and started talking to cotton farmers, it was pretty mind blowing how different their experiences and expertise and reality was from um, the information that is being circulated about cotton. And what's really interesting about the the west texas cotton organic cotton farmers is a lot a lot of them are conventional and organic they grow both, so they can tell you about you know the industry from both both sides um, so that that was really eye opening for me and then also my interest in this paper was watching um Standards in journalism erode over my 20 years in the industry. Like when I started out, um, you know, there was still fact checking at most publications. Um, I started out before the ad revenue model in journalism had changed to where people were incentivized to produce content based on, you know, read through rates. Um, and I had noticed. That standards had dropped. Um, I was really excited to dig into what that meant. Uh, but I really could not have anticipated how widespread and deep and troubling that problem is until I worked on this paper
0: with Marzia. Um, Sarah, I'm curious, because you're, you're also coming at this from a journalistic perspective. I'm curious, you know, what, like when you hear this, does it
2: strike a nerve or a chord? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I have do not have 20 years in journalism to look back on and I m- maybe was not here during much of like the the I don't want to call it the golden age because I don't think it was particularly phenomenal, but um yeah, it is I, I had an experience recently um of doing some kind of back-end research and stumbling across, you know, in the food area, a, a white paper put out by a big um, international kind of very well-respected food security organization um, and was reading through it, stumbled across a section on an uh, organization that I knew some, some stuff about. I had done some in-depth kind of investigative research on them before, just like read through the white paper and was like, wow, this is not real. Like I know for Mm. a fact that like some of the the stats quoted in here are, are not correct are not, but like, the white paper says like we did our research and like we fact checked this and this is all accurate. And just realizing that like, yeah, if I was a reporter and I didn't know I'd cite this white paper seems legit to me. Like, I don't know how I would, what kind of additional legwork I could do to prove mm-hmm. that it's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know why I'd ever be incentivized to right? like reporters have, you know, I've been in newsrooms before where I ha- have the expectation of filing a story a day or, you know i have like 8 hours to put it together i'm not i'm i'm do- absolutely doing my best as a reporter to find the most accurate and appropriate information to put in my stories but like do i have days and days to to run down leads and talk to multiple sources and make sh- absolutely sh- and like gut check and reality check and yeah and then i was also when i was turning in a story a day at other new- at in various newsrooms it went up the next day it didn't get fact checked it was you know, on me to do the best that I could. And if something came up and said, oh, this isn't correct, then you issue a correction. And and that's the end of that. And it is terrifying. <laughs> Which in a way is
0: the perfect transition to some of the substance of this report, because one of the things, as you both said, that you're aiming to do is to not only debunk specific claims, but to equip people with the tools and the skills to be able to do this themselves. So briefly, what are the four claims about cotton that you scrutinize? And maybe what were the sort of key tools that you deployed to scrutinize them? And what did you what did you find? Now, I don't know if Elizabeth wants to take this or Marzia. And if you want to stick to just one claim, if that's easier, <laughs> that's also fine. I just want to give you a chance to kind of showcase sort of the the approach and how you hope that people will will uh, you know be more data literate in 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 the future
3: or after reading yeah. this report? It's gotta <laughs> be brief. Yeah, <laughs> I, I gotta say that maybe like approaching one would be the best. Okay, so the first myth that
1: we looked at in the paper is this idea that cotton uses twenty thousand liters of water per kilogram of lint. Um, it is very widely cited. Um, and so what we did was first trace the origins. We wanted to figure out where this number came from, and then we wanted to replace it with, um, a current and credible data point that people could use in place of the 20,000 liters statistic.
3: Yeah, we draw the um, data from ICAC, which is the International Cotton Advisory Committee, which is an intergovernmental body organization that collects data uh, on all their um, um, government members on that are cotton-producing countries. Um, they don't represent all cotton-producing countries, but they have an insight on government data and they check it with their researchers in countries. So that's why we found um, ICAC, um, to be the best um, available source um, for these type of data, these type of global average aggregated data, because that there also needs to be a different um, made on global averages versus um, local insights and specific on farm data, which is another um, matter, I think. and we also have a rating system for claims that goes uh, from uh, gold to red. And uh, it rates um, claims that are being made based on, uh, on, their, on their methodology, if they're peer-reviewed, if they're transparent about the funding and author's affiliations, if they're not. And um, the, the red represents unverified and based um, or based on obsolete data uh, with no known primary resource. Um, and, and the gold standard represents um, peer reviewed articles and as I said like transparent data about funding and author's affiliations that have has a robust methodology uh, that is based on government resource or direct reporting etc., etc and um so on 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 this rating system actually the twenty thousand um twenty thousand liters of water figure used per um Kilogram of cotton we rated as red. And I don't know if, um, Elizabeth, you want to share a little bit more about why um, we rated these red.
1: Absolutely. I think this claim was probably the most interesting to dig into because it doesn't have a known primary source. Um, It's often cited as this World Wildlife Fund report from the 90s. But if you go back and look at that report, it's not what it says, it gives a range. Uh, of of liters per kilogram of lint. And the range is, uh, I believe, 7,000 to 29,000 liters of water uh, per kilogram of lint. Um, and so who knows how that got transposed or morphed into 20,000 liters. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is if you kind of look at what that report was drawing on is it looked like it was drawing from a very small sample size. Like maybe it was just drawing from a handful of countries. But we, we don't really know because the original research that that report was citing from is not accessible. But nevertheless, that data is really, really different than the current credible data on water consumption, which, based on ICAC data, is um, for irrigated water usage, it's 1,931 liters of irrigated water per kilogram of lint on average. That's the global average. And we can talk more about, you know, going back to this idea of like being critical consumers of data. Like it's fine to ask a question about that number, right? Like You know, we want people to say, okay, well, what's your sample size? What countries did you include? Because cotton is grown in 75 different countries around the world. So if you're gonna um, come up with a global average, the the countries that you decide to include include are going to greatly impact what global average you come up with. And I really think that that's one reason why the 20,000 liters number was so skewed back in the 90s, is they were probably just drawing from a small sample size of only countries that use a lot of irrigation. Um, Whereas like ICAC data is looking at countries who use barely any irrigation and are mostly, you know, watering their cotton with rain all the way up to the most inefficient irrigators. So countries like uh, Turkmenistan, where they just have these like wildly inefficient irrigation systems. And then they're like pulling this number out in the middle. That's an average. So um, it's, it's, um, it's complex, but yeah, that was one of my favorite, favorite claims to dig into because we just found out that, we can't figure out like where, you know, where it really like came from or how it even like became 20,000 liters And now it's just spread around the Internet all the time and in, and by journalists.
2: I was just smiling about that and by journalists part, because, yeah, I think I mean, I think the other part of that is at which maybe we want to get into a little bit later. But I think the other part of that is a lot of people who end up reporting about agriculture or about agriculture's like influence in different various supply chains are not do not have a lot of background in agriculture maybe do not feel very capable of reporting on that they find and just like regular people who struggle with data literacy find a simple number and they uh, uh, cling to it because they don't really understand the full context. And they just need to have something in there about the agriculture. Agriculture is not usually their beat. Agriculture is not their focus. They don't understand the the nuance and the complexity. And they don't feel like they really need to because they're just kind of like nodding to it as they like drive to the actual point, the actual topic, the actual thing that they care the most about, which is very rarely the agricultural part of it. Um, And the thing is, we kind of all do that, I think, in general. And so that's why we are, we have like, we also have like this bias about like agriculture being a simple thing, being a simple area, like the idea of like, you put a seed in the ground and then it grows, like that's simple. So I guess everything else (laughs) about agriculture is probably simple. Um, But of course, everything we know about agriculture is that it's actually really, really complex. But do we want it to be complex? Do we want to engage with the complexity of it? Not usually. So well, that's
1: when, one of the reasons I completely agree, like you know if you're if this isn't your regular beat or you're writing a story really quickly on agriculture or the cotton industry, um, how are you going to do that um, well and you know kind of not get too far in the weeds? and I mean that's part of the purpose of the report is like you know we're not asking you to read an entire book on the water cycle, but we do have all of this really useful information in the report to strengthen reporting, um, journalism, you know, brand claims about cotton. Like, it's all right there. Like, if you want to understand the context behind these numbers, we put it together in what I think is a pretty condensed and accessible way uh, so people can elevate their understanding of of a a statistic, like the 20,000 liters statistic. It's interesting
0: for me because I'm not a journalist, but so much of what you're saying resonates with me, too, because when I was a factory manager, like I was having a lot of conversations about how products were made with brands, uh, with the people who were buying from from the factory that I was managing. And it was very and, and it was difficult because. There was very little understanding. At least, this was my personal experience. There was very little understanding on the brand side of how the products were actually made. At least, the at least the brands that we were working with. I, I don't want to make a, a a sweeping generalization, but the brands that we were working with didn't really seem to understand how their products were made. And I should also qualify here that this is the big brands, the big name brands, not the the smaller partners that we worked with, um, the small to medium sized businesses who actually tended to know a lot about what their products um, or how their products are made. But when there is this sort of absence of mutual understanding about how something is made, that makes it very difficult to then have a conversation about how to do it better because there was no sort of like shared understanding of how things were being done in the first place, which in in many ways I think is like what kind of what, what you guys are speaking to um, as well. And then so much stuff just gets like lost in translation. But I think that, you know, in some ways, this is a perfect segue because Elizabeth and Marty, like I've, I've watched a couple of other interviews that you've done uh, about this report. And one of the questions that seems to come up really regularly is like, Okay. Well, why is there so much misinformation about cotton? And almost trying to like find somebody to to blame. blame. Yeah, yeah, to blame. And yep. uh, and um and, and and also like sort of trying to get at the intent. Like somebody's out to dupe me, or somebody, yes. you know. And it's funny because, well, it's not funny, but it's like, um, I mean, my personal position on this is that I don't think there are any villains, but that that you know, like we were just discussing, stuff gets lost in translation. And so my question for you is, you know, what I've heard from you both when you've been asked these sort of questions is something to the effect of, well, brands, journalists and NGOs are the ones who are doing the communicating, and they don't have a scientific background, or the right technical expertise. Is that a fair, a reasonable (laughs) summary? I mean, I, I think
1: that we have we have talked about that, but what the the report is is really trying to to get at, and we really just scratched the surface on this and it needs to be explored further is that fashion misinformation is part of the same information disorder that is unraveling society. It's not unique to our sector um, and you know it's because we are going through this massive social transformation driven by the internet and a, you know, a particular kind of social media, um, structure that has changed the way that information is delivered, you know, transferred, shared between people. Um, and of course it has like lots of incredible benefits to society, but also, um, you know, Digital digital media, the internet, however you want to put it, means that people are being bombarded with information and it's very difficult to tell what the good information is and what the bad information is. And the other thing is that information is spreading so much um, more quickly, you know, instantaneously. Whereas, like, say, in the 90s, your World Wildlife Fund and you're putting out a report. You couldn't have imagined that 20 20 years later, people would take one number from that report, you know, transpose it incorrectly, and then share it all across the internet. Um, So I think that uh, it's unfair to say this is coming from NGOs, journalists, and brands, and that they are just sitting there trying to dupe people. This is a social society wide problem that um, fashion has an obligation to try and get out ahead of or do something about. But it's just it's just not unique. It's not unique to our sector at all.
3: But what Sarah was um talking about earlier, um and you know, the, the fact that agriculture is a complex system and can we just accept that we need to lean into this complexity and tackle it? In order, that's that's another thing. Like, and 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 what I think, what um, what Elizabeth is saying, does society and the system that we have built around information
2: give us enough
3: room to do so? Because that's that's the key. That's the key problem. You know, the, the reason why I set out cotton diaries is because I had no place to tackle that complexity between um, cotton that is part of the agro agri- systems and also in the, the part of the fashion system, there was no place where I could tackle that complexity without getting too technical or too simplistic. And so I think we need to be build little bridges between all the 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 the, uh, the different parties involved, and what I found very revealing and amazing through this work is that I have research skills, I have some um, good contacts of really really technical experts, I have like these capacity to bridge these technical knowledge and convey it to Elizabeth, who has the capacity then to conceptualize it, um, make it digestible for a different audience without stripping out all the context and respecting the technical experts that came that came before her and they came before me. And so I think it's, it's just like I see it as this big wide web of responsibilities that we all share. And each one of us share this responsibility to respect the one that comes before and the one that comes after. And, uh, and I think this is the key because it's um, I know that we often talk about who has the right to tell the story. Everybody has the right to tell a part of this story as long as they respect and make sure that they, they get into these, uh, this complexity and they don't just like, um, yeah, strip it all back. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I, I you know, actually want to...
1: I want to add to that because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot since we put out the paper is that there aren't a lot of spaces for in depth reporting or understanding in general. Like I feel like partially because of the flood of information that's on the internet, it's turned us all, turned us all into generalists. Like, you know, you want to have like a basic understanding of a huge variety of topics. Um, And, you know, especially with cotton, and I'm sure it's true of other sectors, like what what has gone missing is like actual expertise and like a deep understanding of a subject. It's like when I look at the way people communicate about fashion and sustainability, it's like this, yes, people are more informed than like five years ago, but there's also like a very shallow level of understanding that's driven by a lot of misinformation and that really worries me like I am I actually doubt sometimes like how much progress has been made um just by people being more like quote unquote informed because what kind of information are they are they referencing it's mostly mostly misinformation
0: (laughs) Sarah I'm curious your thoughts on this and especially because I know that you know, you're really keen on telling nuanced stories and that you probably have some thoughts about which stories sh- should be told versus get told and how, you know, who should be telling them and, um, you know, on the, in the food and agriculture space more generally.
2: Yeah, um, this is a really hard question because I think in general, the top line of this is there's just not enough agriculture stories being told, period. I think on Google news this morning, I saw three different stories with like some variation on the headline, like this crop is going to change or is going to make agriculture better for the environment or something, or the inverse of that, which is essentially the same story, just with like lots, all the like knots instead of wills of um, this crop is destroying the planet and we have to like get rid of it. Um, Those stories are not, helpful and not good and usually not written by people who actually have the context or the nuance to be able to like tell it in a thoughtful nuanced way they usually lean really really heavily on a little bit of information and on like a few like really kind of cherry-picked stories um yeah but i mean but that's most of what's out there that's most of what gets covered by agriculture i mean in part because there aren't really a lot of agriculture journalists around like left in the united states most people who cover agriculture maybe cover the environment maybe they cover business maybe they cover um outdoor like rural either rural economies or like outdoor stuff um very few actual dedicated agriculture journalists probably less than 10 in the u.s right now uh which is crazy considering that agriculture is like a trillion dollar global industry that's and it, wild yeah it is truly i'm
3: shocked not surprised it's really but shocked. Scary.
2: Yeah. Um, So in general, just more stories need to be told, period. Um, In terms of like who should tell stories, you know, I think part of that is just recognizing, which I think is a skill maybe we've. I don't know that we ever really had a, a good grasp of this, but, you know, especially because of everything, you know, that we've been talking about in terms of what has happened to journalism as a sector. Recognizing that, like, there's no news that you're reading right now that is unbiased even just the idea of bias is kind of odd. Unbiasedness is kind of odd. I mean, unbiasedness generally in journalism for a long time, despite the fact that we never talked about it really meant like from the perspective of like, like an upper middle-class white man. Uh, so understanding that like that is not actually an unbiased perspective and that maybe just being like a, a more culturally relevant way to do journalism would just be to acknowledge who reporters are and what their biases and i don't know just like talk more about like where people come from and what they have and like have people who are reading news be more understanding of what biases might be behind things with the the 20,000 liter um number that you all used in the report the how that you know to me i was trying to think of what would make people think that this was true? What would give people the like, what would what bias would people have that don't know that much about agriculture, don't know that much about cotton? What bias would they carry that would say that would help them believe that that is probably real? And the one that came immediately to mind is, you know, we've spent like the better part of 10 or 15 years to, uh, with the ethanol industry as like this big thing in the world that creates a lot of debate and that we've had a lot of debates, whether or not people are conscious of them or not about food versus fuel and food versus non-food crops in general. And like whether or not we should be spending valuable agricultural resources, land, water, chemicals on agricultural crops that are not food. Obviously in the case of ethanol, that's a very specific conversation about food versus fuel. But I think people, whether they realize it or not, internalize this idea of agriculture should be about food. And when we're making something that's not food, that's like a bad use of our resources. And that is like a whole unconscious thought process that a person could have. And when they see something that's like, oh, look at this agricultural crop that's not food, it's wasting our resources, they could be like, hey, that fits into my conception of non-food agricultural crops. So you know what? That like gives me a little bit more incentive to believe that this is true and this is real. That is a bias that a person, that all of us could have. That wasn't about the bias the, the journalist might have put into a story. That wasn't about the bias... Of the cotton industry. That's just about like a heuristic, a rule of thumb that we consciously or unconsciously have. And it makes some information seem truer than other information. And I don't really know what you do about that. I think it's just like, yeah, people have to. That is like a moment to be like, hey, why do I think that this, why is this number appealing to me right now? Do I hmm. actually understand why I think it's right? And, do, and, and you know, if I do, if it does feel right, where's that feeling coming from? And is it coming from actually knowing that it's right? Which I think is a very hard thing to do.
3: Sarah, I love, sorry, I love what you said, because, I mean, I could have this conversation probably a five hour <laughs> long with you about this. But um, one of the things that we suggest exactly in the paper is that when you put a claim out, when you use something like a point a data point or something ask yourself are you using it to inform and open a conversation or are you using it to persuade people into your argument or mislead and these are like key points that I keep asking myself when I put a piece of information out, and sometimes I do use it to persuade its I'm human <laughs> and and I, I love adding this question of what where like what biases i am I coming from when i when I believe in in this? and it's something that i it, it's it's a good I think it's a very good exercise. and I like the scientific approach of uh, of things is that you open a question. You don't start with the argument and then back up your argument with claims. With you, you can do your research. Like if you want to to back up your argument, you would, can always find something that backs it up. While if you reverse the process, you ask an open question and you come with an open mind to what your question is, then I think you're more likely to not come. And with with the with these like full baggage of biases, maybe you can you can just like drop a few
0: but and I don 't think bias is necessarily even a bad thing, right like no. what I sort of take away from the conversation is that what 's important is to sort of push oneself to recognize it, but in a way, what we 're talking about is I think a perfect segue or transition to you know that we've been talking a little bit about who should tell the story what are the incentives of different people who might be involved in telling that story how can we be more transparent about that how can we also push ourselves at an individual level to question what you know baggage we bring when we read a story or hear a story but then the next i think the sort of next sort of part to this conversation is like you know what counts as a, as a truth or a fact in the first place And that is exactly what we're going to get into in part two of this conversation, also out today. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast, or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that.